Hello, and welcome to Camping Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Colin Drake, lecturer in literature here at Campion College. Video game narratives can often sound like fever dreams. Famous video game plots of the 1980s involved a small yellow puck fleeing through a neon maze eating discarded fruits while being chased by ghosts, and an Italian plumber violently assaulting turtles in order to rescue a perpetually kidnapped princess from the clutches of a glam rock dinosaur with a castle fetish. And yet it can be argued that over the past few decades, some of the most vibrant and unique experiments in narrative have occurred within the video game medium. From the explorational world-building of the Elder Scrolls series, to the historical-slash-sci-fi-slash-conspiracy genre mash of Assassin's Creed, to the emergence of choice-based fictions like Life is Strange, the possibilities in the video game medium's storytelling has never seemed so diverse. But what makes a narrative work in this interactive medium? What are some of the best examples of such texts? And can three people have a conversation about video games without using the term ludonarrative dissonance for more than two minutes? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined today by two of Campion College's alumni, Anna Hitchings, now Media and Communications Officer, and Jonathan Grace, Campion's Senior Residential Tutor. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here again. I want to start with kind of a a broad question that I might begin with uh, you, Anna. Do you think that games have the capacity to tell stories, at least in the conventional way that we understand them? Or is it more about world building? Is it about conveying an environment and a space in which narratives happen? Or do you think that narratives can actually uh, exist within a video game medium? Uh, I definitely think that narratives can exist in a video game medium, and we're definitely seeing this all the time now. So I think that perhaps earlier on, say around the 80s and the 90s, video games definitely were more based in the world building sort of area but I think as video games have improved as the graphics and the quality of the sound and and the design and the cinematography and all that sort of stuff have really improved over time the narrative actually has had to keep pace with that and that I think that's why we're seeing now the narrative is actually taking in my opinion anyway is taking more of a lead in the overall scheme of the game than it ever has before. Sometimes, well, we're seeing now that that the the most applauded and and lauded and highly prized games are actually ones that take the narrative perhaps more seriously uh, than any of the other aspects, or at least as importantly as as um, the most important aspects of a game. Good, and that includes good voice acting, a good script, um, and I think that's now we're seeing the, the quality of that is just as good as the um, the amazing graphics that we're seeing these days as well. So you're talking about things like Last of Us 2 yes. and uh, Red Dead Redemption 2? Yeah, a lot of the Naughty Dog games, are, I think, really were uh, quite instrumental in this. So certainly The Last of Us, which I haven't actually played, but I've obviously uh, I've heard a lot about and I've seen some videos from the gameplay and Uncharted and a few others like that. So what is it that they do differently then, do you think? Maybe I'll throw this over to you, to you Jonathan. Like, what, what, what do uh, video games afford us that we can't get in any other medium yeah i think it's the um the involvement that well what used to be the reader or the listener has in the actual narrative itself whereas in the past you know you'd be engaging with a story you know through your imagination now video games allow for an individual to actually almost physically engage with the story itself and sort of step into the shoes of the the main protagonist um in the past you know you have like like what anna said you know, these games which were designed around sort of difficulty. You know, it's a hard thing. You're just sort of going along with these mechanics and, you know, you might enjoy it, you might not. You might be successful, you might be unsuccessful. 
But then all of a sudden, you know, these mechanics weren't enough and we started to inject sort of um, narrative into them and storytelling. And that's when, you know, a high school student can create an okay mechanical game. But, you know, what sets, you know, high school students' games aside from, you know, the more sort of professionally developed games is the story and the way in which the story can allow for an individual to participate in it. Mm. So are you sort of saying there that that development of narratives came from moving away from video games as... As you're saying, that the end point is all that's really in mind, getting to the castle, rescuing Peach, and the, the whole idea was just to go through some sort of rote manipulation of the, the environment in order to get that end point and get the you win screen. Now it's more about inhabiting that, that space, which allows for that, that kind of Yeah, narrative. definitely. You know, you've got sort of, in the past, you know, well before my age, you know, pinball machines and, you know, you, you were battling to try and get your name on that scoreboard. You know, if you're doing Pac-Man to the best of your ability, you might be able to get, you know, some sort of humorous nickname placed on the screen. So then all your friends would be playing it and they'd think, hey, that's, that's Waxhead. He's done such a fantastic job. Look at him with his million point score. I'm just thinking of the episode of Seinfeld with the Frogger. <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, so, so then all of a sudden it wasn't, it wasn't enough. I think that, you know, people weren't going to these sort of, um, you know, what, what were they called? You know, these, these gaming houses, um, arcades, arcades. Yeah. Did you really not know that? What... Well, I, I feel like I'm a million years old now. Maybe you are. <laughs> wow. See, yeah, I never grew up with, um, with arcades. Sadly, you know, gaming for me was always something which was done on an India at an individual level. Right, um, really so, home console. Exactly, yeah, home okay. console, and it was before the you know when internet was fast enough to be able to play with your peers, you know, across you know land or whatever. And so yeah, so my engagement with the story was the most important thing. Whereas I think in the past people were coming together and battling it out, trying to get the biggest score, and that's how they were enjoying it. Well, that does seem to be the the moment where it evolved, isn't it? Like where, where you're not just spending 50 cents to play through as much of the, like a golden axe or something, where you're playing for as long as you can uh, before the arcade kicks you out and forces you to pay uh, more money to keep going. Once you're at home and you have that game that you're going to be investing time in for multiple hours, they have to justify that time by filling it out with... With narrative, Anna, forgive me if I'm wrong in this, but you seem like the expert uh, <laughs> to me in in Do game I? history. Like, are there uh, any sort of moments that you can think of where games really did take that? evolutionary leap in, in the past well, well i certainly do not claim to be any kind of expert no i forced <laughs> that upon you so. you certainly did but that's all right i'll go i'll take it uh well actually my experience of games is was kind of not quite the same as jonathan's although i i'm old enough that i do remember you know as a young girl my brother's going off to play in arcades and, and stuff you know like shinobi and street fighter and all that sort of stuff but my experience of video games was actually it was more of a family environment so you know my my brothers would would beg all that for christmas you know the next sega console or atari or whatever it was actually i don't think we were ever an atari family we were a sega family for sega, a, i was we, sega you were and then we became playstation people yeah i was playstation yeah. No same. Nintendos. Oh, no, we had Nintendo. We had, no, sorry, we did, we did have Super Nintendo. So it was Sega, then Nintendo. Anyway, this doesn't really matter. But my point is, my experience of, of growing up with video games was that sort of family uh, sort of aspect. So we would all be clustered around the television. Uh, and as soon as, you know, like my brother died, it was the next person. So I have three siblings. So we would take it in turns. And, of course, you know, you were really invested to do a good job and to not die. Because as soon as you died, or you might have gotten like two lives or something, it went on to yeah. the next person. 
So, um, and we played lots of games in that way. But uh, what was sorry? What was the original question you were asking? So, uh, just did, did you get a sense of where you felt video game narratives evolving? In, in a noticeable way where it was more than just uh, about reaction times and trying to get your way through a colourfully portrayed level and more about actually engaging with a narrative? The answer is kind of yes and no. I mean, I think it's important to point out that we've that video games have always had some sort of narrative and that has always been a, a part of it. And to some games, I think more than others. And I think that... But I think that there has been a very recent shift in... And when I say recent, I'm looking at maybe since maybe in the last 10 years or so, maybe maybe even a little bit longer than that, where we've seen games start to put themselves on the same level in terms of quality as your average Hollywood film. So I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that the first Uncharted game, which has, you know, smooth-talking, badass hero Nathan Drake, being played by not just a voice actor, but they actually incorporated motion capture. Yeah. Not just for him, but for all the characters. And I think this was one of the premier games to actually do that, to actually take that whole voice acting to the next level. And because I only played this for the first time like a couple of years ago, and it was, and this came out in 2007, I think. So it was quite a revelation for me that not just the narrative, but the dialogue, the interaction between the characters yeah, became yeah. such was such an important part of that game. That was easily the most enjoyable part. Yeah. So there wasn't it wasn't as if like in normal games where you're playing for a certain amount of time and then it cuts to a cutscene and they have a, the characters might have a chat and then you'll keep going. Whereas there's constant dialogue throughout the whole game and it's just and it's really cheeky and it's funny and it's. <laughs> And so it's as much about the characters as it is about the story. And Definitely. I think that that's what I mean when I when I say narrative. I, I'm sort of incorporating all of that. And then that started to catch on. So that now, um, I think it was again revolutionized with The Last of Us, where that was kind of cinematically, those, those performances are really stupendous. Mm. And the sort of same qualities we'll see with any, you know, with any really decent film with good actors, but uh, with A-list actors. But also uh, this the whole using motion capture for the voice acting of the film is now becoming more of a common trend. So even the, the most recent Tomb Raider games have all used motion capture yeah. and, and using the same actors as well. So the actors actually are building a rapport. Just like, and, and I've heard them describe it as almost like a, a cross between stage and screen acting where they're being filmed, but because they're actually, you know, they're basically in a blank space and they're having to imagine the environment about them. It, has, it brings all those elements into it. So certainly from the actor's perspective, it's just as much of a job as your um, long-running TV series or, or film. Just to, to speak to that quickly, you're absolutely right. That that crossover um, between the mediums, one of my favourite games is Enslaved. It's a game that many people have, have forgotten or didn't care about at the time, or, but I just adore it. It's kind of a retelling of Journey to the West um, or the monkey story. But it's, I don't know if he directed it, but but certainly he directed the motion capture. Andy Serkis, Golem. Really? Uh, yeah, he, he, he ran, and also another game that I'm not quite as familiar with called Heavenly Sword. But it's exactly as you're saying, these are professional actors. Their entire performance is being gathered to be rendered in the the game itself and what they're able to create then through subtleties of behavior or or interaction or or just the the general portrayal of the dialogue which in games traditionally could be pretty hammy oh my gosh the first resident evil game oh Oh. man i love it (laughs) (laughs) but i think that was deliberately hammed up so that the game wouldn't be too scary but that is you think you're being very stellar voice acting right there Well, the Resident Evil 2 just came out. Did they preserve the, the hamminess? You mean Resident and... Evil 7? 
No, 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 Resident Evil 2, they, they did a HD remake. Oh, um, really? Okay, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't actually aware of this, but um, but um, funnily enough, uh, I was told by someone I know who is currently playing Resident Evil 7, which is just kind of relatively recent, I think it came out late last year, and, um, and, and he told me it was the scariest game he'd ever played, or, or the, not just the scariest game he'd ever played, but the scariest thing he'd ever experienced, either on TV, film, whatever. It looks terrifying, it's, it's first person, unlike the, the yeah, you know, that's third right. person... So the setup is that this, um, this this guy's wife has gone missing for three years, and then he suddenly gets a, a a video of her basically asking him to come and rescue her, and so he ends up going to this abandoned looking house in Louisiana and ends up getting trapped in there, and, and then survival horror ensues, and it's and I was really intrigued by this by the description of it, so I actually went and sort of binge watched my way through a long play of someone else playing the game. Which is an embarrassing investment of time because it was like five and a half hours or something long, and I just spent two days watching. I was, but it was, I was, I couldn't draw my eye. I just couldn't take my eyes away. And after, and you know, when I had to stop it to actually, you know, have lunch or live my life or whatever, yeah, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I had to go back to it, and I was just so completely drawn in. And the voice acting that couldn't be more of a difference between the first Resident Evil and this one. But again, what actually kept me going was the story. So the way that they did the horror was was really intriguing because you're um, basically you're you're trapped by this essentially psychotic family, all of whom are maiming and mutilating each other, and it's it's extremely violent actually. It's, so because uh, that was the impression I got as like a bit of a chainsaw massacre type. Yeah, basically. Vibe. But um, yeah. but 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 the question is, what is the deal with this family? Like, why are they like this? And 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 um and and there's obviously a lot more going on beneath the surface. But I just yeah. had to keep watching because I just had to know. Because also, when it starts out, and I'm pretty familiar with the Resident Evil series because I've played most of them, but as the story unfolds, it becomes more and more like a regular Resident Evil game. Like, there's little um, hints that kind of take you back to the first game. Like, there's a broken shotgun that if you take it off, then the room will, like, the room will lock you inside. You have to put a broken one there instead and take the real shotgun. So there's things like that which make it more Resident Evil. But the actual story, eventually, as it unfolds, becomes, you know, if, if anyone's familiar with the Resident Evil series, they know it's all about these um, viruses that are used as um, to create bioweapons, essentially for like biochemical warfare and eventually the story does unfold and you end up finding what's actually behind um, and I won't spoil it for anyone who wants to play it slash watch it although I will warn you it's extremely violent and very very scary but yeah it was the story that really kept me going it was the narrative that I found so intriguing I just I was just so compelled I had to know I had to get to the bottom of it just like any really good murder mystery actually so I think that that kind of speaks to the level of narrative that exists in games these days that one thing I wanted to mention just to what Jonathan said earlier is that I think that the fact that you're involved really makes video games a whole different... Ex- and, and I think this is something that people who don't really play video games don't quite understand, is that it's not just like watching a movie or even reading a book. Because you're actually physically involved... I mean, with this game, survival horror, I suppose, is a good example, because you're at a point where you're sitting there with the controller in your hand and you don't want to walk down that corridor and turn and turn mm-hmm. that corner, but you know that you have to, and you can't just... If you're reading it, it's sort of happening a bit more passively. But because you're the one... You're the actor actually involved in the drama, oh, yeah. it... I think that that's why video... I actually think this is what makes video games particularly positioned to really create a, a really compelling narrative that draws you in in a way that no other medium really can because yeah. you're the one actually doing it experiencing it as it happens, which is so unique. Yeah, I actually watched um, a playthrough of Resident Evil 7. I remember sitting watching, I think it was um, Frankie on PC in 1080p on YouTube. This this you know, YouTube, and he's just playing the game. And there's a scene um, at the dinner table, and and you feel like you're actually welcomed into this household by these characters, and you know you, you think, oh, this is nice, and you sit down, and and you're at the dinner table, and and then the the wife brings you this meal, and I remember it just being this this brownish 
obviously mm. something which I was like possibly human. Um, <laughs> and it had like worms and things in it. And I remember being repulsed. You know, I just thought to myself, this is the most disgusting thing that I've ever seen. And, you know, like what Anna was saying, you know, you want, you want to leave, but the curiosity of, you know, well, where did this meal come from? Who, who was it? Was it the last guest that they had? You know, all these sort of <laughs> questions start arising and, and you realize that, okay, at this point, I'm in it for the long haul. I have to find out. I have to get to the end. And if I don't, then it's like an injustice. So visceral immediacy exactly. ties you to... And then, you know, the, the, I remember the father stands up from the dinner table in anger at you with a knife and um, the controller, the, the vibration in the controller. And it, it actually shocked me and I dropped the controller. That, that seems like a perfect segue into my next question, which is having established that video games have a legitimate claim to narrative and, and to storytelling, what can we say they're particularly good at presenting? You've talked about that, that immediacy of, of placing you right at the center of the action. Is there anything else that, that video games are particularly good at employing or utilizing? I think earlier on you you spoke about the distinction between world building and narrative, whereas I think that for me it was the world that was the most um, appealing thing, the way in which you could have narrative interwoven within sort of the settings of you know the, the broader game. So for me, you know, games like Assassin's Creed and, and you know, Dishonored, Dishonored 2 recently came out, and you're able to sort of walk through these large landscapes and engage with different sort of story points. Now, this for me gave me more control over the story, and you know, your engagement with it leads to different endings. That sort of um, direct impact that you have on the story was always a wonderful, wonderful thing. I remember growing up reading like Goosebumps and you know, <laughs> the create your own story narratives, and, and, and more recently Netflix. I believe has recently released a yes, series. Black Mirror, I think it's the new exactly, Black Mirror. Yeah. It's an interactive right. film. I haven't watched it, but yeah, yeah. And, and these sorts of things, I think, are what games can do more easily than written narrative can. Tricking the the person who's engaging with that story into believing that they have an actual impact on the characters' lives. One of the games that I would kind of hold up as like an exemplar for the, the possibilities of the video game form would be Mass Effect. Did you guys ever play? Slightly, Mass Effect? not a lot. But this this series basically it, it's set in space. Uh, you mentioned Goosebumps or, or Choose Your Own Adventure. It's got a lot of those elements to it where. There are branching story points in which not only do you have the usual RPG elements of designing your character and whatever powers they're going to use, and there's also this component within it of actually having an impact on the narrative. So you're a space cop who's investigating some weirdness that's going on out in space, but you will, in the course of your investigation, you'll kind of get to these moments where you could kill a character or you could believe them and, hmm. and leave them alive. You could investigate some topic that could then lead to further ramifications or you could just cut off that narrative entirely there you you choose basic binary good and evil options but usually it's a bit more nuanced than that and you decide who you're going to believe who you're going to take on missions with you a gigantic story unfolds with lovecraftian alien creature elements to it but the whole thing is wondrous for that for that sense of agency that it evokes in you eventually there, there are three games in the series and then there's a fourth one that no one really talks about but the, <laughs> the uh the by the end of the trilogy you could see the artifice that was being employed it, it, without getting into spoilers it has a very disappointing final 30 minutes where you discover that a lot of your decisions don't really matter at all but up until that point the illusion of impact that, that you have in the narrative is quite compelling that, that you have this sense of 
ownership of your character, ownership of your place in that u- literally universe that you are shaping with your actions. It's uh, incredible. And, and again, something that you could never do in a narrative as much as mm. you can talk about the parallels between video game fiction and choose your own adventure. A choose your own adventure really just has a couple of branching parts until you get eaten by the shark. Yeah. Whereas with, with a video game, and, and particularly over the course of these three games, Mass Effect, you can actually see if you let a character die in the first game, they're not coming back for the third game. Or if you uh, allowed one sort of species to be wiped out by some action that you participated in, they're not going to come back in the third game, uh, even though they do. The, the idea is that the impact that you have, the choices that you make, have this, this way of shaping the narrative and the text itself will respond to your input in an incredibly unique way. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it is something that is so unique to video games and I think that's one of the reasons, well, for me anyway, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy, why, why I enjoy playing games is because you actually have that active participation element that you don't really get in any other kind of media and in any other kind of entertaining media i think this kind of goes back as far as uh, i mean as far as i can from my experience i mean even as long ago as 1999 when the first silent hill came, game came out oh i've always wanted to play silent oh hill. silent hill is just oh magnificent i mean <laughs> yeah i mean it's particularly the first game i loved i mean the narrative it's, it's a it's a tricky one to talk about because the whole narrative is just so subdued you really have to put the pieces together after you finish the game to even figure out what the heck the game was even about and i think that was largely because it really dealt with a lot of sort of very dark sort of material that um, might not have been sort of too kosher at the time but even in that game so that was a long time ago obviously and there were if you did or didn't do certain actions throughout the game then you would then you would alter the ending so there were actually and so this is quite a long quite long ago and there were quite, I think Konami which is the creator of the game was quite ahead of their time back then because there were four different endings that they had. There was like the, the like the good ending, the really good ending, the bad ending, the really bad ending, and then they had a total just for fun. They had a total joke ending where the character <laughs> ended up getting like abducted by aliens wow. in a spaceship at the end, which was not something that was any that was ever meant to be taken seriously. But it was just them having a lot of fun with it. But I think that it was because of the actually it was because it was kind of a, a unique sort of a new idea at the time. They were able to have that kind of fun with it. But uh, just that idea that yeah that you know you, so for example. There's a character that, you know, she's your friend for, for most of the game and then she basically gets possessed, essentially, by some sort of little demon or whatever. And um, and you can choose to either shoot her to kill her uh, or use some sort of substance on her, which actually sort of is sort of like performs some sort of exorcism, essentially, and, and, and rescues her from the demon. And then that will directly affect the ending, which I won't say because I don't want to spoil it, even mm. though people should have really played it by now. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Judgment. No offense. But yeah, I mean, I think that is, I think that we're still in the process of people kind of discovering what you can see and can actually do with video games because it is just so different to any other kind of medium. And mm. I, I think we're sort of, I think this is why narrative is becoming a, a bigger deal and a more vital element because people are realizing that this is what is, this is what compels people. And there's just so much that you can do with a video game. Yeah, I'm, I'm, inter- I'm just curious to see what happens next. What, what's so fascinating about what you were just saying then is that we, we are in this experimental state. It's, it's like early cinema where they're not exactly sure what the limits of what they can do are. And, and the so, technology is changing all the time. Exactly. Which is constantly impacting on that. Yeah, so you have something like you, you mentioned Konami, another of the games in their series, the, the Metal Gear Solid series. I know about Metal Gear Solid, but I never played it. Well, they just have this moment, like, again, uh, this nudges up to the edge of spoiler territory, but this is many, many years old now. But you have this battle with a guy called Psychomantis. And as a way of messing with your mind, because that's his whole thing, is that he can get in your mind and, and see what you're thinking. They had had this element of the game where during the, the boss battle, 
he reads your save file what? on your PS2, yeah. And and if you've played certain other Konami games, he references it and kind of calls you out. So there's this weird puncturing of the, the fourth wall yeah. there that he's meant to unnerve you and freak you out. There's also the Batman Arkham Asylum games in which... At a certain moment where Scarecrow, who um, psychologically can play with Batman's mind, sprays you with a fear toxin and the game reboots and you think that the game started over again, but in fact it's just part of the delusion. So you as player are Batman experiencing a video game while also... it's it, it, like There's this wonderful kind of metatextual play mm. and, and collapsing of the experience of player and text that, again, only really video games can afford or, or experiment with. And you mentioned earlier, uh, Jonathan, like the, the dropping of the controller, yeah. having that kind of visceral reaction to it. Uh, have either of you played the, the game Life is Strange? Fine. It, it's a little episodic uh, adventure, very much like, uh, we keep coming back to this term, but the choose-your-own-adventure, yeah. where you, you have... Uh, a story that's unfolding, you make decisions that can then impact things further on. And because it's episodic, you get even more that sense of your decisions having consequence, that, that things can really play out in a, in a bad way. And there's a moment in one of the later episodes, it may even be the final episode, where your character gets spoiler warning gets maybe kidnapped by by somebody is in a very bad situation and suddenly these controls that you've been relying upon for the entire game betray you and this guy wants you uh he, he wants to kind of psychologically dominate you and so you're given these dialogue prompts which would usually be yes i agree with you no no i hate you no i want to leave you know these multiple decisions where you can uh, impact the story now suddenly that agency is taken from you and all you can do is compliment him and it's this horrible yeah it's 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 this really claustrophobic horrible feeling that again you couldn't get in in a fiction a fiction could tell you that's happening but it couldn't walk you up to that moment and force you to do something against your will. That's so funny. That actually just on a slightly more lighthearted note that I can remind. I'm not sure if any of either of you have played the Monkey Island series, oh, which no, I yes. adore because no, no. yeah. they're so funny. But there's actually, I think it's in Monkey Island three or four where you're you're being questioned by some authority, and all of the response and, and so I think maybe not all of the responses, but some of the responses are really really cheeky talk back. You know, you know, you're going to get in trouble, but you as the player, you can't help but click them because <laughs> you're like, oh, what's going to happen if you and you click. What is what is what what says there is a whatever the answer is, which is a really really smart assy kind of response, and he just responds politely, oh no sir, thank you sir, <laughs> <laughs> just to trip you up, and it's actually so funny. And then conversely, there's a there's a part in a, in the in the fourth game, Escape from Monkey Island, where where yeah, again you're you're basically being schooled out of being a pirate because you know the pirate being a pirate is a terrible thing, so they're trying to they're trying to train everyone. It's this really funny sort of take on the whole PC culture in a way that you know um, we'll try and train everyone out of being a bad. <laughs> pirate by like schooling them in good manners and, and everything and so Guybrush the main character is forced to be in this school and this truly annoying irritating very patronizing professor is asking you know is, is saying oh if you're in this situation what do you do and all the other people are saying oh like I'll reluctantly put my sword down and you know blah blah, blah. and and uh, and then you have these 
possible like four possible answers as guy brush and then they just go from bad to worse and you always <laughs> want to click on the most scandalous shocking one <laughs> and 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 every time he does it shocks the shocks the professor and shocks everyone else in the class like whoa what is wrong with you uh it's just and it's just it's such a hoot um it's just so i mean i know that's a slightly funny take on no, that that's talking about, but it is it is quite it's got a fun way that they can sort of play with the player so you're being you're playing the game but you're being played with it at the same time i'm reminded of um the stanley parable Oh, I love this. Oh, I don't know this. Oh, man. Yeah, so it seems to be very similar to what you're both saying. It's like the the narrator is is, is almost fighting against the player. And you're in this office and you're Stanley. And the narrator says, oh, Stanley realised that he had finished all the work that he had to do. And he got up. And then you have a choice. Do you get up or do you not get up? (laughs) And then you might choose not to get up. And then the narrator says, oh, but he wasn't sure if now was the right time to get up. (laughs) And then it goes on and on, That's and then you, you find yourself in a corridor, and it says, Stanley took the door on the left, and then you might take the door on the right. Yeah. It says, no, but Stanley wasn't sure about the door on the left, so he took the door on the right. And then uh, it escalates, and, and eventually, so you know, it, like all these other games, you, know, you don't know what the ending is, and it's like playability. Yeah. You can finish the story and then play it again and again and again and again, and every time it's a different story. And, and Stanley takes on a different persona. And that's something that's that's wonderful within the mechanics of a game because I don't think you know the written word can't really do that. I like yeah. when they get a little bit cheeky like that, where you oh, they right. kind of they're almost daring you to really be a smart aleck yeah. and, and take the cheeky route out. The Stanley Parable is absolutely no, that. I've it's, never heard of it. That sounds hilarious. Towards, yeah, towards the end, the narrator says, "What's the point that I'm here anyway?" Yeah. Stanley does whatever he wants. He doesn't even listen to what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm reminded of George of the Jungle when the narrator starts arguing with one of the characters <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> This is a way of breaking that fourth wall. That was no, cool. no. It is. A, I mean, well, even even to to use that comparison, the, the movie narrative has to keep going. So mm. even though the, the it character doesn't change and, depending on what yeah, you choose to do. Whereas the Stanley Parable, because you will get to a fail state, the story will end. Something will screw up, or the game will kill you. Some, something will happen, <laughs> and then you return to that desk. Yeah, and then the narrator incorporates that into the into the story. Is that the, suddenly your failure. Uh, your inability to pursue whatever narrative line it was that you were trying to, to do then impacts the, the next run through and the narrator becomes more sarcastic, more aggressive, more, uh, you know, uh, uh, playful in, in some instances and the, those narratives can escalate further. It's brilliant. I have to get mm. your copy just outside of this. <laughs> No, you have to play it. It's fantastic. But the way in which it, it, it deals with that sort of you know, decision, decision-making process is different to a lot of other games where it's, you know, it's retrospective. It's like you reach the end of your story and then you realise the weight of the decisions that you made. Mm. Whereas with the Stanley Parable, even from the beginning, you, sort of, you start to realise that, okay, I have a lot of control over this. Mm. And really every single decision that I make is going to impact the end. Yeah. Whereas with something like you know, Dishonored, it's like you play through the game and you might kill people and... By the end of it, you know, if, you, if you've killed people, then the story all of a sudden says, you know, everyone's dead because of a plague or something like that. And it's like, well, wait, I didn't want that to happen. You right. know, I didn't realize that that was going to have this consequence. And now I'm, I've reached the end of the game and I feel like I don't want this ending, but I have to live with it. And I think that's something quite profound as, as someone playing a game that you, you realize that your, your, your decisions do have weight. Well, I think that that just shows that there's a self-consciousness, I would say, uh, about games that don't really exist amongst movies or books. That because the way the way that the, the game works and the medium and the console that it's played on has the capacity to actually change things because you're playing it live, so to speak. 
because you're playing it as it goes, it actually has the ability to sort of play with you or to change things as you go. Whereas a book, obviously, it's, it's not going to, you know, choose your own adventure aside, it, it's not going to change because it's already written as it is. And even there's only so much that you can do to sort of break that fourth wall. It's kind of, it's, it's, it becomes very meta, yeah. you know, when it, when it calls attention to the fact that this is actually just a game and you're playing it and it knows that you're playing it and it knows that you know that, you know, it just kind of goes into the sort of spiral. But you do have the opportunity to do some fun and unusual things like that. And I think that that's kind of comes back to what we were saying before about, you know, where is it going to go next as the technology is improving as well? So we've discussed some of the things that, that video games are very good at communicating or, or uniquely positioned to uh, employ. Uh, are there things we can talk about that, that maybe video games have to this point failed at doing? Are there like tropes or conventions or elements of, of video games that disappoint I'll throw some out there. So you you mentioned earlier on that uh, man visits spooky house because his wife has disappeared. That always strikes me as uh, it's a painfully repetitious trope in video games that I think there uh, that many video game creators are aware of at this point. But you know we've had Mario seeking out Princess Peach. We've had kidnapped uh, wife in like Dante's Inferno. That, that game, if you ever not kidnapped, actually, I think just murdered, straight up murdered. <laughs> lots of lots of revenge stories uh, or, or kidnappings. Um, so I could do without that. It's funny because even as you say that, when I started watching, the, you know, this long play of uh, Resident Evil Seven, I was very much aware of that trope when going into it. But even though I was, I mean, I wasn't. I was probably semi-consciously aware of it. But it didn't bother me at all, the fact that that was still, even if it was a cliche, I think it was almost, I think that that, that I suspect that they actually deliberately drew that into the narrative right. because they knew it was a cliche. I mean, partly, I think um, just because what ends up happening is so wildly out of, <laughs> it's yeah. so wildly out of sync with what you, what, what, with how those narratives end up going that I think the starting with a cliche was kind of like almost like a ironic place to start or right. my, maybe it was even done to sort of to give you a full sort of a full sense of security or something like that that you were going into a storyline that you know but you and then you, then the storyline actually unfolds and it's not a storyline you know at all it's pretty crazy I like the idea but of um so no I mean I don't know if tropes necessarily like that really or cliches bother me I, if they're done well and I think yeah. that was done well I think that games like The Last of Us deal with tropes well because you know these disaster games where you know it's an apocalyptic environment and you sort of you know what's going to happen. You know, like, um, oh, what's the, the most recent one? Um, you're in the vault and you come out of the vault. Fallout. Oh. Fallout, of course, yeah. So, so like, Fallout, you, you almost know what's going to happen before you buy the game. You know, you know that you're going to be in a vault and you're going to come out and there's going to be a world and you're going to engage in that world and there's going to be some sort of mystery and you sort of will unravel sort of the story as you go along and you sort of know exactly what's going to happen before you've bought the game. But what it is that you don't know is how they're going to use those tropes in an interesting way. And Last of Us does that well. So you know that it's this apocalyptic environment and you know that you're going to have to engage in the world and that there's probably going to be zombies. But how they create these zombies and how they create your engagement with this setting, that's where the creative flair comes through. And often the stereotypes that we have within gaming are centered around gender tropes. And often that can restrict the narrative because you know exactly what the character is going to do. So you know that if it's a, if it's a male character, they're probably going to display some sort of masculinity and they're going to save someone who is, you know, immasculine. And, and you know, women, you know, you, you sort of expect that a lady is going to find herself in trouble and then, you know, the, the, the male character is going to be the one to save You mean according her. to convention? According to okay. convention, yeah. The, but then the games that do it successfully, like Last of Us, 
are where you have these roles sort of almost reversed, but in within the narrative. So you have a young child who you expect to be vulnerable and, and weak, who all of a sudden takes on you know these uh, immense tasks and, and, and is almost the strongest willed character within the whole narrative because of the setting which she comes from. And that makes complete sense. Mm. And, or, you know, you have the, the masculine character who is dealing with a lot of, you know, things which normally the masculine character isn't having to deal with, you know, who, who might find themselves weak, you know, and has to be saved by, you know, the small child. And, you know, without that small child can't be saved. And all of a sudden you, you have these role reversals which create an interesting narrative as opposed to something which you expect to happen. I like that, like that idea of that, that we're programmed to expect something from the video game form because of all of the baggage of, of its past history that then exactly. is, is flipped in that way. Another video game trope that, that I could happily do without uh, at this point is uh, amnesia. I don't know how many games have to begin with the protagonist wakes up and I don't know who I am or what I'm doing here. But it seems like that's another... Do they still do that much? I'm trying to do the last video game that actually did that. Well, there was Amnesia. There's a game called Amnesia that, oh, okay. that's well, based on that. Uh, or there's uh, one of my favourites, uh, which, again, is a bit of an odd choice that no one else probably is even that aware of, but uh, Kingdoms of Amalur, it's like this fantasy sort of Skyrim-ish knockoff, begins with Amnesia. But again, that's kind of the point, is that you begin with this question of, well, who am I? But it's ultimately completely immaterial. It's it's just riffing on those video game tropes so as to say, well, no, you just completely create a new person, which doesn't sound as revolutionary uh, as, as I explained it right now, as it actually is in the experience of the game, because that game's also doing a lot of interesting things with agency and role-playing choices that get, get folded into the narrative as well, and the repetition of the video game form. That we can skip over. No, 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 well, actually, I was going to get into that. Oh, um, great. Just about the repetition. I mean, so while we're talking about tropes, I think that one thing that's... It's an interesting thing to consider with these games that have been going on for years or, you know, sometimes as long as a decade or more, have the, it's run into the same problems, I think, essentially, that, that long-running TV serials run into, which is what what's next? And I'm thinking specifically of, of World of Warcraft, which I, I will admit that I got pretty addicted to for a, for a short time of my life. It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. But so I'm fascinated by World of Warcraft, but I come from it from a complete outsider's perspective. I know visually what it looks like. You should stay an outsider for your own safety. <laughs> <laughs> the safety of you and your wallet. But, uh, well, I mean, it's, it is a fascinating game. I mean, the whole idea is that you basically have a... It's, it's essentially one of those sort of alter ego um, lot, like, you know, lives where you can sort of be a different person and, and experience all these adventures and, and things and interact with other actual people in this specified world. But the thing is, so World of Warcraft, I think, came out after the video games of Warcraft um, had already had already been created. But then, um, so obviously it encom- encapsulates the, the narrative that's happened up until that point and then you've got the, the world that you're playing in. And then, then to make things interesting and to keep it fresh, they add expansions and, it, and, the, and every expansion will be a, like a sudden big big turning in the in the in the narrative so some new person will become the the, the villain and uh, and then the whole expansion really becomes about defeating that villain and it's funny because initially i think warcraft started off as a it was it was the, the war was really between humans and orcs as the as the two main sort of antagonists but then as the as world of warcraft became the thing that sort of superseded the the original games and the expansions came on like on one on top of another, it became a sort of a the, the threat to the world at large, and so mostly for the most part, the Horde and the Alliance are kind of teamed up or or allied loosely. 
But the thing is, after something like, I think they've just released their seventh expansion. So at this point, it's it's almost like seven or eight seasons of a TV series. I mean, right. where do you where do you, where do you go from there? And it's sort of I think it's this it kind of creates this interesting dynamic or um, not dichotomy, but um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? But kind of a cri- I guess a, a sort of a crisis where you you it makes sense that obviously there's only there's only a certain point you can get to because obviously you know so maybe you're you're saving yourself and then you're saving your city and then your country and maybe the world and then what's up you just save the world again and again and again so with the last game they actually really upset a lot of fans because they took one of the most beloved characters and basically made them a total psycho and and committing basically committing you know some serious war crimes almost with with no real rational reason reasoning behind it and and I wonder if they do this is because there's really where else have they got to go they've got to keep making these games if they want to keep the world running because it's a it's a constantly running world that is always live 24 7 wherever you are in the world so where can they go from there you know are they just going to you know i mean i mean there is i think there's some suggestion that maybe they've just introduced this so that this can be the beginning of the end so they can kind of like tear the edifice down you know ultimately um if everything kind of just burns or or, or whatever but yeah it is an interesting and I, and it's you see this with a lot with tv series now where love the narrative will reach a point of exhaustion where exhaustion on the part of the, of the part of the story writers where they don't really know where else to go with the story and so they'll either make it go somewhere a little bit crazy they'll figure a way to wrap it up and sometimes they'll actually do it really really well or they just keep running the show into oblivion and we've seen that this happen we've all seen this happen so many times in so many different tv series and it's interesting when it comes to a game because it's a slightly different setup gamers still want to play in that world so i mean you you know what do you do sometimes you know if you come to the end of a series they might just reboot the whole thing and start from scratch but they can't really do that with world of warcraft i mean they could but they might upset a lot of people because there's so much history in in that world and yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm, I'm one. I imagine that the game that the game writers are actually sort of dealing with themselves. Like, where do you where do you go? Mm. And that's sort of. I think this is an example of where narrative kind of over, kind of like play, out, outplays itself. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Does anybody play the Saints Row series? No. Very very silly <laughs> series. Uh, there's four games, but just what you were talking about that that idea of escalation and that narratives having to top one another. Saints Row really leaned into it. So in the in the first and second game, they're pretty much just Grand Theft Auto ripoffs. Like okay. al- almost <laughs> almost blatantly, it's it's just a series that is open world, steal cars, get up to mischief. Yeah. But then in the second game, I think I had didn't play the second game, but uh, from what I understand, there were some side stories that you did that were kind of silly and a bit playful. Mm. And so in the third game, they leaned into that, and suddenly you had. Uh, almost superpowers as you were running around this city with just this heightened, uh, hyper-real kind of vision of a world in which you become this all-powerful criminal overlord that lasers and and, um, spaceships and all, all this nonsense. But then in the fourth game, you have to top that. So within literally something of a spoiler, but it happens within the first five minutes of the game, the world is blown up. You're, <laughs> you're the president of the United States and the world blows up and then the, the rest of the game just escalates from there. So it's uh, it becomes this video game's have as you as you said as i guess all running narratives do this this problem of how do you top the thing that came before while having some sort of basis or uh tie to to the narrative that uh, it's evolving from while keeping it interesting exactly and saints row just embraced the looney tunes-esque nonsense uh, (laughs) that they were they were setting up there but the other narratives like mass effect that was one that i mentioned earlier 
fell apart, I, I think, in, in pursuit of that, because eventually that, that need to top itself led to completely asinine ending. That well, this is why I really admire series like Uncharted, where they actually, where the, where the company made a very clear delineation that this is where we're going to stop, this is where the series ends. So they finished, so they finished with Uncharted 4, which uh, I haven't actually played, I have to admit. But from what I hear, it was it was it was had a very much a closed ending, and I think a lot of fans were actually quite pleased about that because I think it treated the story, treated the material respectfully, and also yeah. kind of treats its fans with some uh, with respect as well. That they're not going to just keep just slinging them for more cash. Like, how much more money can we get out of these people if we keep playing these games? I actually admire. And respect when they actually decide they're gonna they're gonna they realize it's kind of done all it can yeah and they're gonna end it while they're ahead I mean now... Naughty, Naughty Dog are great that the, the mm. creators of the game they're great because Jack and Daxter I love that series I would pay I would throw money at them if, if a new Jack and Daxter <laughs> game came out and they just won't do it they said there's three and that's it and a weird car racing thing on the side well I think Sony still owns the rights to Uncharted so who knows they could actually create another game but the actual but the writers of the game and everyone who was heavily involved with the game has very happily closed yeah. the book on that whereas you have on the other end of that spectrum something like Assassin's Creed that just won't shut up <laughs> and, and I say that as a fan of the series but it's over a dozen games at this point and yeah, there's the, a lot of them. The narrative is so obviously kind of tangled itself into perpetual nonsense that that's where Battlefront Two made it easier for me because I realised it was it was EA. It's EA that's doing this. You know, it's the commercialization <laughs> of you know the story. They buy the rights to the story, and then you know it's about making money. And the same with like World of Warcraft. Ultimately, the goal is not to tell a story; it's to make money. And you know within you know, literature, we see examples of that, you know, books and, and series, which, you know, you know that sadly the object isn't to tell a story anymore. It's to take a good story and milk it for all it's worth. And mm. that's when, mm. you know, the correct answer is let it die. Lost, can I just say? Lost, yeah. Or exactly. TV the series, Fast and yeah. the Furious. Lost it will just be Vin Diesel and The Rock <laughs> throwing planets at each other. <laughs> well, and now sadly almost Star Wars is becoming like that. Almost. Yeah the old fans sort of are reminiscing of what it should have been you know with what it was and it's just going down this slippery slope of you know monetization well, I, I mean anyone with a brain saw that coming when disney bought the rights from george exactly. lucas i mean obviously it's disney of yeah. course they're going to milk it for all it's worth because it's star wars <laughs> and you're and the I lover know, of disney i know <laughs> i know i'm the lover of disney but i mean i i, I yeah it's but... a giant vampire beast <laughs> that will destroy all that's good but, but i love it and i went to disney World. i know i know and at this point i'm not really sure whether i would have preferred them to just never have made the the sequels to are you serious you or, guys are so down on seven well, and eight. I love eight. Eight in particular. The one that just came out that everybody hated. Yes. <laughs> I haven't even. I haven't even seen it. Everybody's wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> no, I mean, like, but seriously, the, the, I think that I personally, as a consumer, do feel somewhat insulted by a what is clearly a marketing company just trying to make more money out of me and. And when the checkbook comes before the love of the story or the love of what it is they're doing. And I think everybody feels that. And I think that's why we grow to, you know, sort of resent series and games that, that do this. And, I mean, Lost is a classic example. If we're, doing, if we're just switching to TV for a second, Lost is a classic example of this for me because I was a diehard fan. And even as other people started just, like, pattering off the waysides, I was saying, no, I will remain true to you, Lost. And even I just lost interest eventually. There's a game plan. Until, They've got a plan. No, I think that, and I think that this is why not just video games but TV series and, and uh, themselves actually generally do better when either 
there is a clear story from beginning to end. They know where they're going to end it, mm. which Lost clearly didn't have no. to its death, to its massive detriment. Or they do sort of what they did with Uncharted, where they actually reach a point where they sort of they recognise as adults that they can't really go much further and not take away yeah. from what's from what the actual story is and or, without or, like, rehashing it and you know or basically bringing it down. So they decide, okay, we're actually going to end it because we think it's re- it's done all it can and it's reached its its end. Great, absolutely. Should we go around the room and, and uh, maybe give an example or a couple of examples of video game narratives that we think are particularly good and video game narratives that we think maybe have, have failed and what that sort of speaks to about the medium? Jonathan, did you have any... Yeah, I think that for me, Safe Horse to always bet on uh, indie games. So generally if I see an indie game that's got a little bit of hype, I'll jump on board. And, Can you I tell always... me what... Sorry, what, I'm ignorant. What is an indie game? Well, indie games are usually games which are developed not within a big studio. They're individual, small, smally sort of like companies which create stories. And, and they're always story-focused because, you know, that's what they're trying to sell. Right? Little Nightmares is an example or Inside. Stanley Parable is another one. You know, they, they, they really are sort of just stories that you're engaging with, and, and I love those. And then Dishonored is another example, and it's only had two editions of the game, Dishonored 1 and 2. And um, yeah, so so those sorts of narratives also, well, those games, they they are focused on the world and the story, and, and they're very simple, and they have an art style. So they do it really well, but then you've got, you know, I, don't know, I, I didn't enjoy games like Grand Theft Auto. I got a little bit sick of it. I played sp- one of those and I really enjoyed it, which was Vice City. <gasps> yeah. Well, the early ones. <laughs> it's great, yeah. But again, like you were saying with World of Warcraft, so like these early games, they, 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 they're the big ticket item. They have the story, they have the, you know, the mechanics, and then all of a sudden the big company, like Rockstar, how much can we milk it for? And then you get sort of like Grand Theft Auto Five, which is phenomenal as a game, but really doesn't have any story. Like That's something which was an afterthought, I think. Uh, well, I just wanted to mention two series that I thought got to the point of they could where they could have actually just become really tired and sort of blown them, um, sort of repeated themselves into oblivion. But I think have actually managed to reboot themselves or, or continue relatively well. I mean, I know I keep banging on about it, but I really do. I really did like the the most recent Resident Evil game, and that was a series. That's a series that I've always really loved, and I've played ever since the first game came out back in 1996. And I think that that got to the point, and I, to be fair, I haven't actually played a lot of the more recent games, but and I, I haven't even played this most recent game. I just watched someone else play it. But did, Can I ask, did you play 6? Because that's kind of widely considered to be where they totally lost their minds uh, on the narrative. No, but is this the one with Leon Kennedy as the main character, where they should have changed the whole play of the game? I think it's the, there are multiple narrative strands, but it, it's just so hyperbolically over the top that I think a lot of people it basically I know that with the Resident Evil series there there's those kind of very claustrophobic tank control kind of mm. early ones then you get with to fixed camera angles exactly then you get to Resident Evil 4 where that's, it turns sorry, into yeah that's the one I was thinking yeah of. a bit and more then, of an action game but is highly beloved Resident Evil 5 tips more into that and goes a bit kind of extreme but Resident Evil 6 is like you crash a helicopter through a building and then an explosion tips you out into something. Like, it's just every, everything is heightening the thing that came before it. So it turns into 
like a Michael Bay sort of Yeah, thing. no, I don't actually. No, I haven't played Resident Evil 6 and actually I, I know very little about it, so I wasn't aware of that. But It I looks think... hilarious, but uh, <laughs> it angers many of the fans. No, the well, I can imagine that it does and I think it's it's one of those, it was sort of a failed example of where can we take where, where can we take this next? Like how much what more can we do with this? And, I, and what I like about the Resident Evil 7 and I think what, the reason it was quite critically acclaimed was because it really, it sort of dispensed all that and really came back to what is a survival horror game? No. What should it look like? What does it actually feel like to be in one of those games? And they did a really good job of that, I felt, with really bringing it back to its roots in that sense. And I don't mean its roots in the sense of the, the narrative of the game, but in terms of the genre, like what is that game meant to be? And I think that a lot of games lose sight of, of what they're meant to be just as they're trying to come up with new ideas. Another one, which is probably not as good an example, but is very dear to my heart, and, I ha- and I'll, I'll never forgive myself for that mention, which is Tomb Raider, which I've always Yay! been a diehard fan of. And, uh, I mean, I don't think any Tomb Raider game really has, has even come that close to being as brilliant as the very first one was, in, in, in just in terms of how it made you feel like you really were completely alone. That soundscape in, in the first game is just, astonishing. Just the, the atmosphere, like, that was just one of the most, I think still remains today, the, one of the most atmospheric games I've ever played in my life. I don't mm. know if any other game has really made me feel the way that that game makes you feel. It really feels like so you've just gone, and... you're so alone but in a really kind of slightly creepy but really fascinating and kind of scary and, and just compelling, really interesting way. And I think that, that that whole series went through the same of same problem of how, how can we make this better, where can we go next? And I really – and I got to the point where I, I enjoyed the first few games. I didn't really enjoy the fourth game. I think a lot of people do, but I felt Is that like, Chronicles? Or? No, no. Um, that was The Last Revelation, which, which takes place entirely in, in Egypt. And I just really didn't enjoy that game. And I thought it was an – was, I thought it was a failed attempt to get back to the sort of the, the sense and the atmosphere of the original game. Yeah. And then it kind of just – and then they came up with Chronicles, which was a pretty poor game by any standards, certainly by the Tomb Raider standards. And then, and then But then the game was sort of rebooted initially by Crystal Dynamics, which was – which, you know, made a fair effort with about three games. And then they rebooted it again more recently and they've now brought out the third game of this recent it's reboot Shadow of the Tomb Raider yeah. yeah they've just come out with Shadow of the Tomb Raider which I played you know and absolutely loved yeah yeah, it, yeah it's fantastic I and love I, oh, yeah they, they re- I think it's the best game actually since the very first one I really? mean for different reasons but because they, because they decided that they're going to reboot it and just do something a little bit different with the whole series they weren't, it wasn't trying to be a recreation of the initial it really was a reboot in the true sense of the word and I think that that's it seems to really have reinvigorated the genre for that reason I mean I love the last two games the, there was the, the Tomb Raider and um, which like, I love yeah that, yeah okay. that one was really really good and then I and then and then of course Rise of the Tomb Raider which I actually really loved and then the Shadow of the Tomb Raider is just like a whole nother level of again they really really go next level with the not just the narrative but the character of Lara Croft has so much more personality in this game right. than you've ever seen her before and the story in the first one was pretty rubbish but you know it was still it was it was a fun ride but I like that, that those are two series that got to the point of being a little bit too tired um, and they successfully managed to reboot it and please the fans and I think also bring a new kind of fandom with them. The the original run of Tomb Raider games is another perfect example, as you're saying, of, of a series that got so tired that even the creators tried to kill it. Yeah, like, that, oh, sorry, I didn't mention that. The reason the whole point of Tomb Raider Re- Last Revelation was to kill Lara. Yeah. They, they, just, they wanted to be done with the pressure of making these games. <laughs> it's an extraordinary <laughs> position to be in, like hating the, the thing that's making you money, the thing that, which, again, having to crank out a game every year would be such no, a nightmare. And actually, if I can just bring something in a little bit left field, but this actually, I was I was attending a lecture of yours recently when you were talking about the death of Sherlock Holmes, and it was kind uh-huh. of the same thing, where he was so sick of the character, he just thought, well, I have to kill him, <laughs> otherwise people will keep demanding more stories about this guy. It's just, it's fascinating. 
Uh, I would throw into the mix uh, Assassin's Creed because I think Assassin's Creed is a perfect example of what is so extraordinary about video games, but also the the pitfalls of um, the video game narrative, basically tying together everything that we've been saying here. The original premise of the Assassin's Creed games is so phenomenal that the idea of it kind of having this metatextual awareness of it being itself a game and uh, having this idea of a player avatar who you're controlling, this guy Desmond Miles, who is himself going into a virtual reality world to experience the past and those three levels of, of narrative playing up against one another. So that culminates, I think, in the second game where at the end of the game, a godly character appears and while talking to Desmond Miles through the avatar of Renaissance character whose name is Ezio Ezio it's the only one I've played oh really so you know that moment no well I didn't go that far (laughs) (laughs) I have played the game at least at the end of the game, this this sort of god character turns up as an avatar within the... The world, like the Medici world? Yeah, the, the video game within the game. The avatar world. And is talking to Desmond Miles through Ezio, but then turns directly to the video game character. So is actually talking to the player outside of the television screen. So it becomes this like incredible layering of, of communication with text and narrative and player and uh, avatar. It's it, brilliant. But it was almost like, yeah, no, it really was. It's like playing with those onion layers of uh, the experience of of playing with a video game in an incredible way that then they just sort of couldn't follow up with these yearly iterations of the narrative. And Mm. it started, the, the narrative just started spinning its wheels and going nowhere and just throwing more and more convolutions and nonsense until you got to the point where they had to take a year or two off because audiences were just tired of it and Mm. and the narrative itself kind of went nowhere and even in the lead up to there there are a couple of games like syndicate which i I really enjoyed but nothing happens in that plot at all like on (laughs) on any level in the modern day narrative nothing really happens in the london setting that you're spending the majority of your time really nothing happens and apparently the the latest one odyssey people are very excited about that but i don't know i I haven't played that yet so I, i would need to step back into it but the assassin's creed series had such an exquisite premise and for a couple of games a really wonderful story that then just fell apart by the necessity to be a franchise to keep cranking out these games every year to to fit some well, kind of now financial... it's a movie franchise oh and wasn't it a fantastic <laughs> film <laughs> oh, i was just gonna say odyssey i would buy see i i, I sold my console no, i went to pc and my pc can't handle odyssey but I would, i'd buy a console just to play it from you know the feedback that i'm getting it's like it has revived the empire i think that's what i've heard so i look forward to it just to exist in that world i mean again the narrative one hopes from from what uh, everybody's saying that the narrative is kind of reinvigorated but one of the great appeals that i think assassin's creed could coast on for a number of years was just to be able to exist in those worlds like yeah. to you know hang out in smoggy london you know in the industrial age or to goof around in renaissance italy or or, or even um, the American frontier, you know, in, in Assassin's Creed 3, which took a lot of criticism, some of which was very justified, but it is a, a big sprawling game that probably bit off a bit more than it could, could chew. But just that 
ability to to go off into the frontier and kind of exist. I wonder if they should have just focused on that. <laughs> yeah. Right. We could have an old conversation just about that nature of escape, of escaping in games. I mean, escaping to another world, living another life. I would love that, and perhaps that is a topic that we should take up in future. Perhaps. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. But for our discussion on video games today, I want to thank Anna and Jonathan for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Another pleasure to be here, Carl. (laughs) And we will be back next time with another Campion Conversations. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by Transparently Fake Fan Correspondence. You know, guys, I'm so glad you're here. Um, (laughs) We got an email this past week from Pearl Person who said, and I'm, I'm quoting, Thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. I listen to a lot of popular media and entertainments, and I'm very up to date on what is cool. And I believe that this really is the greatest piece of entertainment ever devised in the history of humanity. I mean, that's oh, really lovely, isn't it? Come on, Pearl. We should hear more from her. Uh, Pearl goes on to say, I especially enjoy the host. Oh. Thank you. Um, He's informative and funny and doesn't sound at all like Kermit the Frog. (laughs) As I am a real person, could you please tell me how I can donate money and or create a cult-like atmosphere of worship around your enterprise? Thank you so much, Pearl. Um, I know it it makes a real difference to get that kind of honest feedback, so thank you so much. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.